0: Hi, welcome to On The Investor's Minds. I'm Tai Hui, the Chief Market Strategist for Asia Pacific at JP Morgan Asset Management. And thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time to learn about what the investors are focusing on right now and how that fits in with your portfolio construction and asset allocation. So I'm delighted to have our Chief Market Strategist from the Americas today. Uh, her name is Gabby Santos, and she's with us this week in Asia Pacific and uh, meeting some of our clients, as well as some of our investors in the region. So of course, we have to make use of this opportunity uh, to ask her a few questions about the US, about the world, and uh, you know a lot of the questions that our clients are asking about right now. So Gabby, great to have you with us in Asia this week, and uh, very much welcome to this part of the world.
1: Thank you so much, Ty. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me on your podcast.
0: So um, let's start with the most obvious question. Um, A lot of clients are very much uh, thinking about what's happening in the U.S. We've had a lot of strong data out of the U.S. economy until recently, um, and it looks like that the U.S. economy is not stopping. So what is your outlook of the U.S. economy and how worried should we be? with the recession in 2024.
1: So this has been such a positive surprise this year, how resilient the data has been in the U.S., especially the labor market data, and hence consumption has remained quite strong and much stronger than we thought would be possible given all of the Fed rate hikes and the elevated inflation that we have seen for 18 months now. I think what we saw in terms of growth in the third quarter was a bit abnormally strong, though. So we saw 4.9% GDP growth and 4% consumption growth. That's simply not something that we can extrapolate from here on out. So we do expect a slowdown from here in the U.S., especially led by a normalization in consumption patterns. And I think if you think about it, Accumulated savings, a lot of the lower-income, middle-income households have already spent those. Recently, the consumption has been fueled by households taking on credit. Credit card growth is now back to normal levels, and households are having to pay 20% interest on that credit card debt. Ouch. Um, That's just not sustainable, and you've actually started to see delinquencies rise. Households also now have to pay their student loans again. That started October 1st. And you're getting some child tax credits disappearing. So you put all those variables together, it seems normal for consumption to slow, to normalize, to be a little bit more aligned with wage growth again. Um, And I think you're starting to see that uh, traveling around the US, you started to see a little bit uh, less busy uh, activity in terms of airports, hotels, I think a lot of that revenge travel is behind us. So for next year, we expect growth in the U.S. to be more aligned with normal levels. Our base case is 2% GDP growth, which is not terrible. It's just not this boomy nearly 5% growth we saw in the third quarter.
0: So from that perspective, we still have a pretty respectable growth environment in the U.S. in 2024. what is the Fed's calculation going into that? Because in the, even in the very recent days, we've heard Fed speakers talking about we're still focusing on inflation, mm. um, even though they have kept rates unchanged in the last two meetings in, uh, in September and in November. Um, and many of them are still advocating maybe we need one more or even more in 2024. Mm. So what's your view um, on the Fed in terms of are they done with policy rates increase? Are we at the end of the hiking cycle? And perhaps more importantly, if you look at Fed fund futures, uh, there's style to price in more rate cuts in mm. 2024. Is that a realistic expectation?
1: Mm. I think officially they're still trying to talk tough, still trying to uh, be a bit hawkish on inflation, just given how behind the curve they were uh, last year. But I think at the um, November FOMC meeting, we did see some dovish hints uh, during Chair Powell's press conference. So in terms of growth, he mentioned how he also thinks thinks. Uh, boomy third quarter growth is unsustainable, and they would really welcome a bit of a, a slowdown in growth from here, even if no recession. Um, He also mentioned that he thinks there's a little bit more balance these days in the labor market. Uh, Labor force participation has risen again. uh, Demand for labor is starting to cool a bit. And that's helping to bring wage growth down again. And then lastly, he actually, even on inflation, mentioned how he sees inflation expectations as pretty anchored. Um, So I think the call for the Fed for us base case is no more rate hikes. Mm -hmm. We really don't think that's necessary uh, at this point. In terms of rate cuts, I very much think it'll depend on how quickly inflation continues to come down. If by the middle of next year we're in a scenario where inflation, especially core services inflation, is much closer to a two-handle or two percent, then I think it could start to open the door to serious uh, rate cut discussions. Is
0: there a particular threshold from a job market perspective that the Fed's looking at, whether it's unemployment rate hitting a, I don't know, five percent handle or? Uh, Non found payroll dropping to a particular level. Are there particular thresholds that we should be looking out for?
1: I think because they're still so focused on the inflation side of the mandate, really the read through they're looking at is wage growth. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, about 18 months ago, you had nominal wages growing 7%. At the last October jobs report, they were growing 4.1%. So as long as we continue seeing um, a more normal pace of wage growth, I think they would be happy. Uh, in the read-through to less inflationary pressures. Now, what they would like to see for wage growth is not Mm 4.1%. I think they'd feel more comfortable uh, if it starts coming back closer to 3.5%. And to get that, you probably need uh, job growth to be a little bit below 200,000. That's actually what we ended up seeing at the October jobs report, which is why the market reacted so positively.
0: So, um, obviously, we are just less than a year away from the U.S. elections. I've uh, I've been with this firm for over 10 years. I think I sat through two elections in the U.S. Uh, always exciting. Um, and we do get a lot of questions as we run up to these um, important political events of what investors should do. Um, from our research, from your experience, what should investors think about when they look at the U.S. elections, whether it's a presidential or the congressional uh, that will come on November 5th, 2024?
1: It's interesting. We have very long history for data in the U.S. So we can look at uh, economic data. We can look at market data going back 50 years uh, to derive some conclusions about how the election impacts actual fundamentals and returns. And the truth is, it really doesn't. Um, The economy tends to grow over time, regardless of the political configuration, whether it's Republican led, Democrat led or a divided government. Uh, within Congress and the executive. You also tend to see the market go up over time as well, and you tend to see positive returns regardless of the political configuration. It's also tricky to do these exercises because uh, politics is only one variable. The actual most important thing (laughs) for the economy and returns are long-term drivers, its earnings growth. So it's a bit tricky to assign a particular outcome just to politics alone. I think what's important to remember uh, going into an election, it's not the outcome itself that matters uh, from a big picture perspective. It's more just the uncertainty in the lead up to elections. And what you tend to see is about two months or so before an election. Sometimes you end up seeing a correction in the equity market. Um, but really, it's, it's more about the uncertainty itself. And once we know the outcome, then the market goes back to focusing on uh, the fundamental drivers, and it tends to go up over time. So I think for us, the implications, if there are any, from the election a little less than a year from now, it's much more at the subsector level. Uh, maybe one configuration is a little bit more favorable for traditional energy, or maybe one configuration is a little bit more challenging for pharmaceuticals within healthcare, but it's much more uh, nuanced, much more marginal, and much more at a subsector level. And the last thing I'll say about the election is a year doesn't seem too far away, but the truth is it's an eternity in political terms. (laughs) So we might have uh, a very close race at the moment between uh, what seem to be the two leading candidates, President Biden and ex-president Trump. But who knows? There's a lot of ground to cover from here until Election Day.
0: So obviously, uh, you know, Gabby and our team in APAC will give you an update all the time in the next 12 months in terms <laughs> of the subsector implications, whether a particular candidate is going to announce certain policies in the campaign. Um, but more importantly, uh, it's the really the prevailing macro and policy environment that we should care more about rather than the actual outcome.
1: And I think we'll know more, Tai, by uh, maybe March of next year when we have Super Tuesday and then we'll get a better feeling for who really the candidate on the Republican side is and if President Trump is still the candidate Uh, for Republicans and President Biden uh, for Democrats. And then maybe we'll get a little bit more on their actual economic proposals for now. A lot of the discussions are about culture issues and, and not economic policy.
0: So next, I want to really make use of this opportunity to understand some of the thinking of our U.S. clients or international clients, how they think about Asia? Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, Gabby, you are uh, the engineer, the the, the mastermind behind <laughs> our guide to China publication, which, uh, you know, we collaborate with your team uh, in in New York, and we produce a uh, a document that's similar to the guide to the markets, uh, but really focusing on the the China market because you know last last uh, in the last few years has been a huge amount of attention, but of course at the same time because of geopolitics because of domestic economic issues, we're starting to see uh, you know, investors around the world focus or diversify their focus not just on China but on a number of Asian markets. So what's been your experience in the last six months or one year uh, of how US investors look at Asia?
1: So I actually even further back, maybe three years ago when we did launch the Guide to China together with, uh, with your team, Tai and APAC, um, I think there was a lot of interest in investing in China from the U.S. side, and there were a lot of discussions about having dedicated China exposure, specifically China A shares, overweighting China. I think some of the enthusiasm has moderated since then. Um, We've certainly had three very tough years for Chinese uh, returns. Uh, I think also the geopolitical environment has become more challenging and, and the topic of China has become very politicized in the US. So at the moment, what we see investors do is, for China specifically, take very, very targeted investment exposure very specific companies, very specific sectors. And what we're seeing investors do is really broaden out Asia exposure beyond just China. And where we're seeing a lot of enthusiasm from US investors, uh, for example, are Japan, forgotten market for decades. But we're seeing a lot of pension funds uh, start to analyze Japan, if not already start to increase exposure there. Uh, Within emerging markets, we've been seeing a lot of enthusiasm by U.S. investors to understand India a bit more, uh, seen as uh, the growth engine from here uh, of a a major economy uh, in APAC, and also a beneficiary of some of those supply chain reorganizations from from China. So definitely a lot of interest in the region. It's just uh, expanded beyond just the conversation about China.
0: Great. And just a plug to our podcast, I think in the next uh, few weeks, uh, we will do a bit of a deep dive into these individual markets, not just China, but also, as Gabby mentioned, um, on India, as well as Japan, all have their own structural stories. But at the same time, uh, there are some tactical opportunities that we find are very interesting as well. And finally, um, obviously, I think our audience here in Asia-Pacific are quite familiar with the region, uh, which is a big part of emerging markets. But uh, from where you've been working for the past decade, um, not just in the U.S., but also in Latin America, what are some of the interesting opportunities that you see that could be relevant to investors in Asia who are either looking for an income opportunity or um, for a capital gain opportunity on the back of, again, structural developments or some of the cyclical upside that we could potentially see?
1: I'm so happy to be able to talk a little bit about Latin America, and this time actually on a favorable light. Because I think for about a decade there, there wasn't a lot of interest in Latin America. After the bursting of the commodity super cycle, there was just also a lot of political uncertainty in the region. So for the first time in a while, there's actually positive developments there. I think in terms of the income side... Look no further than Latin America for the highest real rates in the world. These are central banks that know inflation really well and they started raising interest rates a year before the Fed did and developed markets central banks did. So they've developed quite um, restrictive policies, uh, very much ahead of the curve, and they started to see inflation normalize again. So you look at uh, the big markets in in fixed income, Brazil, Mexico, they have uh, 600 to 700 basis points of real rates. I think in APAC, really only Indonesia would compete maybe with similar Um, So we feel quite positive in terms of local currency, sovereign debt, uh, especially in in the big markets, Brazil and Mexico. On the capital gain side, if you look at equities, um, by far and away, Latin America is the cheapest region. Uh, If you look at price to earnings. And there's no cheaper region than Latin America. Uh, and you have both cyclical and structural support for equities from here. Cyclically, the fact that central banks are seeing inflation normalize means they have already started to cut interest rates and that can drive flows locally from fixed income into equity. So there's a positive cyclical support there. Um, On a more structural basis, I think the region is really at the epicenter of two interesting structural trends. The first is around the reorganization of supply chains. Mexico is a key beneficiary, being very close to the U.S., being a a part of the free trade agreement with uh, the U.S. and Canada. And there's a lot of investment happening there. And then for Brazil and a few of the smaller markets, uh, we may be at the cusp of a new commodity super cycle for uh, commodities used, for example, in electric vehicles and semiconductors, and that can really drive uh, return for those commodity companies. So for the first time in a while, there's income, there's capital appreciation, and there are positive tailwinds for the region.
0: That's great. I think, you know, um, for Asia in the past couple of years, it's been quite challenging um, from COVID to some of the problems we've seen in China. Um, and of course, you know, the, uh, the the surge in inflation interest rates in the past couple of years have created quite a bit of a, a challenging environment when it comes to investing in Asia. So definitely, I think you know, everybody should be looking to diversify beyond their comfort zone, whether it's in developed markets, we spoke a lot about uh, the US today, but um, also, I think even in Latin America, some other emerging markets, uh, there are plenty of opportunities. So, Gabby, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I look forward to having you back, uh, well, soon.
1: Thank you so much, Ty. It's been a pleasure.
0: So, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this with your colleagues and friends. And also consider subscribing so that you get the latest episode when we release them. If there are topics that you would like to hear from us, please reach out to your JP Morgan Asset Management representative. This content is intended for information only, based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.